in our podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Life Fantastic, the podcast where people with disabilities talk about all things related to disability here on Straight Independent Radio. We're sponsored by neurodiversityconsulting.org and saintchia.org. Check us out online to find out about all the great things that we do with people with disabilities. I'm your host, the Idea Dynamo, Samantha Pierce, and our topic today is relationships, romance, and disability. Yes, people with disabilities have intimate romantic relation, romantic relationships. It's an actual thing. And society doesn't always realize that, yep, people with disabilities are whole people. They have a wide range of emotions. They have a desire for platonic relationships. They have a desire for intimate relationships. So we're going to talk a little bit. We're going to talk not a little bit, a lot. I should stop saying a little bit. We're going to talk a lot today in this episode about what it means to be disabled and trying to have a romantic relationship. So I want to get started with you, Liza, because you brought up the 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 issue of abuse that can happen in relationships let's start there well first of all statistics vary depending on the study and they also vary depending on the gender the study is focused on because women and there is less data on on trans women non-binary individuals etc but because women or at least people who are perceived as being female are more likely to be abused, that also combines with the fact that disabled people are more likely to be abused and increases the statistic, increases the statistic for disabled women. That statistic can reach as high as 80% for disabled people in general. The range is generally between 40 and 70. And that's a pretty wide range, but that's attributable to numerous different studies sample sizes, etc. This is often just because these people in the general society are vulnerable to abuse, but it's also often disabled people often have their significant other potentially being the main one caring for them, unpaid. They might not be able to get a carer, so their significant other is the one caring for them. And if that happens and the significant other has this significant amount of power over them, that puts the person in a vulnerable situation. Mm. And it can also mean that if even if they want to get out of that situation, they either can't because they will lose their care or they can't because they feel like the pool of people they could get together with and, and have a relationship with otherwise is too small because they're disabled. That and there's also the potential that many think that it will reflect badly on them or no one would believe them because the other person is more powerful. So again, that statistic can range from 40 to 80% with the higher end of that being people who are more dependent on the significant other for care and people who are <clears throat> either women or a family name. 
So it's it sounds like it's a complicated issue for mm -hmm. someone with a disability. And again, disability, it's a pretty big umbrella that covers lots of different people, lots of different abilities, lots of different interests. But it sounds like it's difficult, it's it's really tricky for people with disabilities to navigate that power dynamic when the person that they're in an intimate relationship with is their primary caregiver. Even if their primary caregiver isn't someone that they're in an intimate relationship with, still there there's some sticky issues with the power dynamic in the relationship. And it's it's important for disabled people, at least, to try to find someone who's going to respect their intrinsic human value and who's, who's, who's willing to walk alongside them and isn't going to go off on a power trip. Now, with the caveat that humans are imperfect beings, we don't always get things right. And there are going to be times, no matter how well-intentioned someone is, no matter how well-intentioned both parties in the relationship are, things are going to get messy. And uh, particularly with, you know, this, the person you're in a relationship, relationship with, your primary caregiver, especially when that, that particular person's not good at handling their emotions or good at handling the stressors of, one, a relationship, two, caring for someone who has a disability. So things are, things are tricky. There's the other issue where a lot of people don't realize that people with disabilities want these kinds of relationships in the first place, can have these kinds of relationships in the first place. And there are a lot of people making judgments that, well, you're disabled, so you can't really be interested in someone in a, in a, to have an intimate romantic yep. relationship with. Um, Jeremy, I want to tap into you and ask about that. What is it, what, what is there going on when people fail to recognize that people with disabilities can actually, you know, actually want to have relationships of all kinds? Well, I think it depends on the disability and the, um, the degree to which that's a visible or invisible disability and then the nature of the disability. So obviously you're not going to find that many people who think someone who has um, only one hand is going to um, be incapable of having a relationship. Right. Um, but there is this kind of, infantilization that occurs of, of people with, with certain kinds of even physical disabilities, particularly um, simply sitting in a wheelchair <laughs> makes yeah. the difference between being treated. I mean, I got, I got this example from a friend of mine, Kevin Tempe, who is a philosopher professor who works on disability. He says his father-in-law, uh, who is a, 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 a disabled veteran, um, sometimes puts on a prosthetic and walks and sometimes uses a wheelchair. And when they're out to eat, his father-in-law is seen as the leader of the party whenever uh, he's walking. 
and he's never seen as the leader of the party when he's in, in sitting in his wheelchair. So it's obviously there, there's something going on there that will influence how people see someone's capabilities and uh, ability to do certain kinds of things that have nothing to do with the disability. So that does happen, I think. But when you're dealing with cognitive disabilities, I think a lot of the time people just they're basically taking an all or nothing kind of approach, I guess, is one way to think of it. You've got some cognitive disabilities, so you must have all the cognitive disabilities. You've got, you've got a, a, a diminished ability to do one thing, and there's no room for recognizing that there's different levels of abilities for a whole bunch of different abilities that are there. So I think that's one assumption that sometimes happens that leads people to think that there's less capability in some way. And it's very similar to the presumption that if someone isn't using language to communicate what they want, that there must not be some intelligence going on behind what they want. The inability to separate the use of language from some level of higher thinking, which doesn't just happen with human beings. It's always uh, possible that chimpanzees are using sign language or something like that. They're only communicating about very concrete things. Maybe they can think on a higher level than they can communicate, but we know for sure at this point, we've got case after case after case of people with, with some kind of uh, nonverbal or not very verbal level of communication where we've been able to get other ways that they can communicate and show that they might be thinking at a very high level in some ways. We don't have that for every person who's nonverbal, but we have that for a number of them. And, and for example, learning to type and that kind of thing. So I think those kinds of, of assumptions, those kinds of not recognizing that some one level of ability that's diminished or lower or impaired or some way, whatever term you want to use, right? Eventually, all these terms become politically incorrect. So I, 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 I lose touch with which ones are the current ones sometimes, even though I'm immersed in this stuff. But if there's some level of capability that someone sees and obviously is not on the same level as other people, they're going to assume that some other one is like that as well. I, I think that's a lot of what's going on here. And in some cases, there may be some lower level of capability related to relational difficulties and things like that, but it doesn't mean there's no desire and it doesn't mean there's no ability. It just means it'll be a little more challenging in some ways. You're right to point out, Jeremy, that there's lots of different kinds of disability and lots of different ways that disabilities can influence relationship forming. But there, there, there is, in many cases, an assumption, especially for, people's who, for people who their disability is more obvious, there's this assumption of lack of ability, lack of competence. And I remember when Kevin Kimpy shared that story about his father-in-law being treated so differently between when he wore the prosthetic and when he was in the wheelchair. He didn't change in those situations. He was still the same person that he was, but the perceptions about him were so very different and it was so very blatant. And for, for myself, with my invisible disability, I don't have to deal with that as much but for folks whose disability is more obvious that has got to be like the most frustrating thing ever i'm frustrated just thinking about it and i want to flip a table <laughs> 
and it's not even happening to me. I'm just thinking about how it happens to others. Go ahead, Jeremy. I think there's another aspect to it as well. There, there are people who will see a disability and realize on some level, whether they're getting an accurate read on it or not, but there's something to this, I'm sure, in most cases, that the kind of work that it would take to have that kind of relationship is something that's uh, daunting to them. And so they, they're a little bit less inclined or maybe a lot less inclined in some cases to, to pursue that sort of thing um, from the end of the other person involved. Mm-hmm. I, I think there might be something like that going on as well. Scott, I want to bring you into the conversation with respect to relationships and navigating people's assumptions about the kinds of relationships that people with disabilities can have. What in your experience has that been like? What have you experienced people thinking or saying about people with disabilities being in different kinds of relationships? Yeah, thank you for the question. When I was younger, probably, yeah, and and on like the fourth or fifth grade, I met a woman named Barbara and I just at the bus stop and then my mom and, and her mom got together and kind of just chit chatted and then kind of just tried to facilitate or foster the friendship. It didn't go anywhere because we were all together. So it was to give me that a little bit of a knowledge of how do you navigate that end and it was nice when it lasted and then I missed it when uh, my mom and her mom came busy or, and then Barbara went off to do her sports and things like that. But it was good just for that first few years, just to have that platonic, just kind of chit chat, but it can be very difficult. I haven't been in any deep relationships with women just in general chatting with them and, seeing how they're doing, but within a church setting. Obviously there's nuances and we were talking about how do you perceive myself with that hidden disability. And also there is the visible aspect of my not walking straight. And sometimes I interrupt, I don't follow the social cues. So it can be very awkward at times, not knowing exactly what I am to do because I see everyone else doing these relationships and I'm a little confused as to exactly what I'm to do and I, I don't drive. So it's a very kind of difficult thing. And I know that I would have, be a, a burden on that person. And then if you ended up in that kind of setting and then if somehow it didn't work out, I mean, if, if I'm not in that position, then how would you rebuild when I'm used to having everything in a nice setting? So it's not, and it takes time. When I did some reading on things, it takes time to form these uh, friendships. And there was a brief definition of friendship as individuals interacting and receiving some perceived personal benefit or mutual satisfaction. And that there's a whole range of these relationships, these, and I said, the social cues like inside jokes, Mm. and just 
And then there's the whole thing about the nonverbal, the eye contact, the gestures, and mm-hmm. and it's, yeah. it's all very nuanced. And those are just yeah. some thoughts. I, I totally feel you with the the confusion about the social cues and all the unspoken rules and assumptions about how we're supposed to conduct ourselves in different kinds of relationships with different people. I hate that unspoken script. (laughs) I hate it with a passion. Just say what you mean out loud. And yeah, I've always felt like, I don't know exactly what to do here. I don't know what these people are expecting of me. What they're expecting of me seems to make no sense whatsoever. Why do we have to follow that particular custom? Why do we have to do it that way? And for for those of us with, with disabilities like that, that leave us like completely clueless about all the, the, the subtext and trying to figure out what the heck these other humans are doing. Yeah. Relationships even, are, are something we kind of stumble into. <laughs> even when I was growing up uh, in school, kids were sort of saying, oh yeah, you know, go kiss this woman. And it was just awkward. I don't know if I did or not, but it was very awkward. They were like cheering me on. Oh, you can kiss her. And, and it was like, I didn't know what to do. And it was, and I didn't really talk to my parents about it. Say, oh, I'm being, I'm, it's just something that wasn't an easy thing to kind of talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we need to create a space for people with disabilities to have those conversations and to talk through how, you know, how do I do this relationship thing? What's okay to do and what's not okay to do? Who should I listen to for relationship advice? Kids, don't listen to your peers, okay? (laughs) Don't listen to your peers. Go Go find a trusted adult who's demonstrated that they have a clue and talk to them. <laughs> Your peers are just as confused as you are, kids. You maybe don't rely on them for, for relationship advice. Liza, I want to I wanna bring in your perspective on this understanding the social subtext and what that plays into in generating relationships. Because yeah, I have a lot of friendships, relationships that I'm not exactly sure how I ended up into that in that relationship. You know, I like the people, but I can't identify the process by which we became friends. <laughs> so in a lot of ways, I a lot of relationships I kind of stumbled into. I stumbled into my relationship with Jeremy, and we've been married for what, 22 years, is it now? Well, you you also I'm a good example of that. You kind of stumbled stumbled into yes. a friendship with me. I, I stumbled into a friendship with all of you, all three of you. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, but I, I don't know how it happens. I, I don't, it should, that's the thing. You just often end up with people. You meet people. I haven't really ever been in a place where I've necessarily been seeking out a friendship. I wanted friends, sure, but I haven't oh, hey, I want to be friends with this person. They seem cool. No, it's I talk to them and then I I can evaluate, okay, 
is this someone I'm interested in spending time with? And I am also in this weird place, seeing as we're talking about friendships versus romantic and other intimate relationships. I'm in this weird place as I generally just call myself queer, um, anything but straight. The other part is demisexuality. I would consider myself biromantic and bisexual. Anecdotally, been shown to be more common among autistic people. There haven't really been any studies done on it yet, but anecdotally, you can find things all over the internet saying that this is much more common when you talk to autistic people than when you talk to neurotypical people. With respect to autistic people, I often wonder, and I wish someone would would do some research into this, if the uncertainty about the social norms and the social subtext and how to pursue relationships plays into autistic people being, I don't know if overrepresented in the non-binary world. I don't know if if the, you know, I would be curious to see are we talking the, are we talking gender here or or romantic and sexual attraction? Yes. Both? <laughs> yes. Because the two are not synonymous things. here. Non-binary, obviously. Yes. I don't gender. think she means non-binary the way people normally use that. I think she just means the, the things that are not typical. So I often wonder if if our unique relationships with with social norms and often questioning why things are the way they are leads to us being overrepresented in that part of the population. If if that's the case, then what does that mean for the choices people are making about relationships? Because I know why is my favorite question about all sorts of things, especially things that people consider to be normal and like, you know, totally duh, well, this is just the way we do it. Okay, why? Yep, as a member of the LGBTQ community who is autistic, I have actually looked into this. Mm-hmm. And there has been some research done. It hasn't been massively done, and it's mostly been led by autistic individuals. From what some of these studies would indicate, yes, there is something psychologically there that would lead us to be overrepresented in the LGBTQ plus community. Again, this research is in its very, very infancy. Now, Jeremy, uh, I want to tap into your expertise as someone who teaches philosophy and teaches how to think about these kinds of things. When it comes to, and I, I want to get back to the to the broader topic of people with disabilities having relationships, when it comes to being comfortable with yourself, comfortable enough to try to pursue a relationship, and there, there, there are a lot of pitfalls. Ethically speaking, how does, how does that work when people with disabilities are trying to pursue a relationship and they you know, sometimes they might not pick the right person, or we know that people with disabilities are extremely vulnerable to all kinds of abuse. Thinking about the ethics and the philosophical thought about around this, what does philosophy bring to the table in thinking about relationships for people with disabilities? So one of the issues is consent, 
obviously when you have someone who might have a lower degree of understanding of everything that's going on around them, it's a lot harder to determine whether they have consented to something. It's also a lot harder for them to have consented to it. So depending on the, the degree of disability going on, that's certainly an issue. There have been criminal cases where people who are convinced that someone has communicated consent to them have been determined by a court not to have done so, and they went to prison for it. But we also, I, I think we also can't assume, because I've seen it the other way as well, that we assume that disabled people, especially those who are either intellectually disabled, nonverbal, developmentally disabled, etc., we can't assume that they do not have the capacity for consent, because that limits them from normal, intimate, romantic, sexual relationships. So we've seen it both ways. Well, I think we can assume, I think we can say that about certain people. Yes. So obviously if someone is at a point where their thoughts are very incoherent or something like that, right? After several strokes or something like that. Yes. And, and, and it's very easy for someone to take advantage of them. That's a very different case. Yes. Than someone who expresses consent, but you might be concerned about whether they really know what they're getting into. And that's a very different case from someone who, I mean, think about, think about children. So we have consent laws for children. And they usually are just some age. In New York, there's this kind of transitional age range where it's 17 for consenting. But if we're within a certain number of years of the other party, then that's the age is no longer a reason to say it's not consent. There may be other reasons, but age is no longer a reason to say it's not legally consent. So, well, actually, I think I think it legally is is not consent, but it's an affirmative defense against the crime, because the other person is close enough in age that that they it's sort of like self-defense, which means you still did commit the homicide, but it's it's you know, no one can no one can hold you as a criminal because of it. So it, the, the 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 first party can't consent, but then the person who would have, would have be found guilty can't consent either. Well, no, that's not true because they could be eighteen. Yeah. So an 18-year-old and a seven and a 16-year-old say, "What would the 16-year-old can't consent?" But it's not a crime that you could accuse an 18-year-old of because mm-hmm. they're close enough in age that it counts like self-defense. Yeah, it's, it's so. I mean, the law is a little weird there. Magically, suddenly at 18, at 17 in New York, at 18 in some states, at 16 in some states, whatever age it is, magically suddenly when you you switch over there, you suddenly are able to consent, right? And of course, that's not how it really works, right? No one, no one really thinks that suddenly you're now able to consent when you weren't able to a few seconds earlier. It, it's it's something that comes gradually. It's something that that is not clear. It's it's something that that is is difficult to determine sometimes, and that kind of thing. And that is so in cases where there are not disabilities. So obviously, disabilities are just going to further complicate that. There are plenty of cases where there are no disabilities where the question of whether someone consents is not easy to determine. And for example, there might be a legal blood alcohol limit that says if you're above that, then you're not consenting. If you're below it, then you are. 
But what if there are other, I mean, there's no definition of what counts as impairment with other things that might impair you. For example, lack of sleep or whatever, right? There's all sorts of things uh, that might in some ways make it less likely that you are making rational choices, right? And, and this is true for everyone. So obviously those are going to be factors that are there for you're talking morally rather than legally. Legally, we got laws and sometimes it's just by law, it's not consent. And sometimes it's by law that you, you can't, you can't say that you'd have to say other things. I, I appreciate that but, you bring up the, the issue of consent and legal age, age of consent, because that, that, that brings us to next the the criminalization of people with disabilities and their relationships there are cases where for one reason or another a person with a disability does not have any control over their life they don't have any control over what kinds of relationships that they can have and when they find themselves at a, at a stage where Actually, you know what? I think I do want to have a relationship with this person. I want to have an intimate relationship with this person. Then the law turns up and says, actually, no, you can't consent to having a relationship. You cannot enter into a relationship. And if you do, the person that you've entered into the relationship with is now a criminal and a sexual predator. Yep. Um, regardless of opinions on, on Britney Spears, um, she is not necessarily disabled and certainly not in the ways that would often cause this sort of conservatorship but she is a perfect example of a situation where someone is controlling her life her relationships and her decisions mm -hmm. and she's not allowed to make choices for herself and potentially i'm not sure of this but i would assume that because she's not she's the one who isn't able to consent because her conservator has to for some reason, then anyone she would want to be in a relationship with, but the conservator is thinking, no, that's not the best idea for you. Even in order to control a person would be criminalized, would, would, would be considered a sexual offender. And so for, for people with disabilities then, especially those who someone has established guardianship for them and, and has ultimate control over pretty much all the decisions, this is a barrier to them having relationships of all kinds because they don't get to control or they don't get to choose who they want to interact with and how they want to interact with them. So there, that's a, a legal and a moral issue there with is it is it right to kind of step in this way and prevent people with disabilities from having a full range of relationships jeremy you want to tackle that one yeah i mean i don't know anything at all about that case so i there, i can imagine there might be cases where someone has control over someone's estate but doesn't have control over some other decisions i, mean, I have no idea about britney spears's case i there's uh, certainly her, her case is just an example here we did, chose not to go the guardianship route. One of our concerns was that, I guess. I don't, I mean, I, I, I don't know what the laws even all are there, but I, I've certainly known cases of people with cognitive disabilities who've gotten married. I, I went to a school that had, it was a private school that had a grounds that 
uh, some people who worked there lived on. And one family that lived there was a couple who uh, the, the husband worked in maintenance and the wife worked in the kitchen and the, and the um, cafeteria. And they both had Down syndrome. And they had a child who also had Down syndrome. And I believe one of them, I believe the father of one of them also was the, the guy that was in charge of maintenance and he might have lived nearby as well. I'm not sure. But yeah, these two obviously loved each other and they had seemed to have a relatively healthy relationship compared to most people <laughs> and, and in relationships. And they seemed to be pretty decent parents for their child. So, I mean, if someone wanted to try to ban relationships because someone had Down syndrome, that, that would be the first thing I would think of. I think you're, you're kind of making a whole bunch of assumptions here mm -hmm. that you might not really have any understanding of. But this can also lead people to believe, and I've often seen this said, that disabled people can then only marry or be in relationships, not only with just other disabled people, but people who are disabled in the same way. Autistic people can only be in relationships with other autistic people, et cetera, et cetera. And I have an, I have an anecdotal example of this. My granddaughter, she was always, always, always trying to set me up, you know, Ashkenazi Jewish family, right? Um, <laughs> even though she wasn't religious it's you know that overbearing aunt type thing but she would only try and set me up whether for friendship or for romance with other autistic people and she exclusively exclusively believed that i could only be in a relationship with another another artistic person now the guy i was interested in a couple years ago of course, did turn out to be autistic, but that doesn't mean that I can only be interested or a relationship can only yeah. succeed between two disabled people. It's great that it did there, and it doesn't mean that it can't succeed with two disabled people, but it can't exclusively succeed two disabled yeah. people. There's, there's something to be said for shared experiences mm -hmm. that might increase the likelihood that people would want to connect with each other on a deeper level but there needs to be room for for people who who don't have that particular shared experience to learn and buy into the that experience and then choose to share their experiences together moving forward i, I have no proof that i was autistic when I, also... when I when i started my relationship with jeremy that came later but we we have a certain shared experience of, you know, being nerds and, and being quirky. And <laughs> Scott, you were going to yes. say? I Yes, I would definitely say that when I look at an illustration well-known in the disabled world with Joni Erickson Tyler, who became paralyzed, and then uh, her husband, Ken, is very supportive of her effort. And from a different kind of a cultural standpoint, it does that can work, but then there's that team. I was also thinking of the example of Nick uh, without any limbs, Boyacek, and how he 
is successful in raising like three or four kids with his wife. And the whole idea of being adaptive and flexible, also having this idea of self-determination. I know that's a term and about making choices. And I do think it's important to point out that it is very, very different when you become disabled during the course of a relationship, when you're able, when you meet people. That comes with its whole other set of circumstances. I don't have experience on that and I don't have knowledge of, of many people who have experiences on that. But as for the relationship with another disabled person, like you were saying, Dr. Pierce, about the two people who were the maintenance and chef respectively, we said we wanted to discuss income limits and forced poverty for disabled individuals and how that affects romantic and other relationships. It's yeah. very, very much more likely that if both partners are disabled, there will not be the same decrease of services or income. There may be some because they are now living together and supposedly have lower overhead, but it doesn't mean that one partner will be paying for the other's medical care or et cetera when both are disabled. So the government will see it differently than it would see potentially an able person taking on the financial responsibility of the disabled person they I, love. I, I, I don't know that that would be the case. Um, Not necessarily, there have, but... There, there have been instances where I've been part of the decision-making process of whether or not a disabled person who's in a relationship with another disabled person qualifies to receive services through a particular program. Yep. It's, it's not for, all, it's not for always, families with disabilities. So it's, it's not it's not always the case, but it is, as far as I can tell, less even by slightly likely than it would be of an able person taking on the financial responsibility of a disabled person. But there there is that that financial consequence that people with disabilities have to deal with. Yes. When, when they are when they're in an intimate relationship or they want to pursue an intimate relationship. And this hits people with all kinds of disability, all kinds of relationship status. It's again, that, that forced poverty with asset caps and income caps, wherein, and wherein people are forced to make decisions about their relationships, not based on the intrinsic value of the relationship to them, or the intrinsic value of of the person to them, but they have to make those those really important relationship decisions based on maintaining their qualifying status to receive supports mm -hmm. that they need, and that is that's something that needs to be addressed. It, it's again one of those it's one of those things that we talk about when we're talking about equity and inclusion for people with disabilities. They shouldn't have to base their relationship status on the requirements of a government program. So anybody who's listening out here about this issue, people with disabilities should not be forced to choose the status of their relationship or the kinds of relationships that they could get into based on government regulations. And again, you don't even need to be married for this to happen. 
some states and some agencies. I do not have the exact ones, but I'm sure we can include information. Will do this even if you are living as though you are married, as they put it, even if you are cohabitating or in any sort of relationship of that sort, they will do this as they would do if you married this person. So it's not even deciding whether or not to marry someone. It's like Sam said, deciding whether or not to even get involved in a relationship with this person yeah. choosing between your own survival and the person you love yeah and we we really need to stop doing that there's there's no good reason there's no justifiable reason and it's it's a rancid way to treat people there mm -hmm. that's that's <laughs> that's how i'm gonna put that yeah and for everyone saying that we have marriage equality some people have marriage equality but this is an issue that needs to ta be tackled among others before we can actually truly say that we have marriage equality here now i want we didn't even get into like the the nitty-gritty of getting into relationship and and preserving a relationship and pursuing mm -hmm. a relationship and that's kind of a re, that's the reality for people with disabilities trying to be in relationships before they can even think about well how do i find someone and how do I interact with people so that I know what I like and what I don't like? There's all these other things to, to deal with. Whether or not they're going to be allowed to pursue a relationship, whether or not people will perceive them as someone who can be in a relationship, mm -hmm. those are hurdles that you have to get over before you even get to the, you know, doing the work of being in a relationship. There's a practical, a practical yeah, aspect. This is the practical aspect of sometimes it's a lack of transportation or even the support that yeah. is given may limit the chances in articles that limit the chances for the contact with the people. So it could be the mm -hmm. service, either transportation or even the service of that program that could yeah. enable it. So there's a lot of pieces and an hour doesn't yeah. quite solve it all. No, an hour doesn't doesn't come close to solving it all. No, but it, it it does it does you know put some of the information out there about what some of the challenges are. And Scott, you bring up a great point about transportation because again, as as we said in the episode about forced poverty, one of the biggest barriers to the participation of disabled people in regular everyday life is the lack of transportation that they can access, the lack of accessible transportation. Then yep. with programming, programs may not be structured in such a way as to encourage people to form relationships with people who aren't the paid staff. <laughs> Yep, we should have the right to live in the same places as everyone else. Mm -hmm. However, because so many of us, especially those of us that are physically disabled, are dependent on either public transportation or other things like that, we are often concentrated in cities in areas of poverty, which is also intensified by, again, the forced poverty of disability. and. 
regardless of whether or not you drive, let's say you're a wheelchair user and you can't necessarily lift your wheelchair into a car. You may be ambulatory, but you can't get it into the car yourself necessarily. Accessible vans, especially if you, the wheelchair user, are the one driving, are massively prohibitively expensive. So again, even if you put the work in to drive it, or know how to drive or can't or any of this thing of the sort, that doesn't solve the issue. Yeah, I've, I've seen families fundraising to get an adaptable van so that they, you know, the whole family can go places together. Yeah, see, and that's families. Imagine if you're an individual trying to raise that for yourself. Mm, yeah. There's a reason there have been so many, I've seen GoFundMe campaigns for disability day in and day out. I don't know. For some reason, people think we're independently wealthy and can pay the exorbitant prices for adaptive equipment. I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on with that. But we've kind of strayed off the, yes. the path of relationships. But this this is a factor that that impacts mm -hmm. whether or not people with disabilities get the opportunity to pursue all kinds of relationships, the full range of relationships. So well, this I, is a and if you're disabled, you might not be considered a capable parent, so you might have trouble also having kids, which mm -hmm. is a part of these relationships. You were going to say, Scott? Yeah, and uh, it just dawned on me, uh, one of the key phrases that from the reading was the idea of belonging. Mm. And that, that's just, that kind of helps to lead towards a more positive focus. I know we might have some negative focuses also pop in, but the idea of belonging, which all, it's all valuable, but the idea of belonging. Yeah. And being part of that's, a community. And that's what we're trying to do with this podcast of Bike Fantastic and yes. programs that both neurodiversity consultant and Sanchia.org feature. And I'm sure your sister, Sam, would agree that we need to have people belong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Be part of a community. You're going to make me cry. Yeah. That, that's like one of those base, those basic human nature things we all want to belong we want to find the place where we fit in we want to be part of the community we want the community to want us to be part of mm -hmm. the community yeah and to be seen as capable mm. yeah whether that's of jobs of being part of society or part of society or in this case being a capable partner mm. So I, it's we're about out of time. It's time for us to wrap up. But the this topic of relationships and disability, romantic relationships and disability, I think is one that needs to be explored more because there are barriers that society puts up that makes it that much more difficult for people with disabilities to have a wide range of relationships. And because it's Scott points out, we all want to belong. We all want to fit in, not by, not by having to give up parts of who we are, but by having people appreciate us in all our, all our quirkiness, 
all our faults, all our gifts, recognizing that, yeah, we're, we're like whole human beings. We're complete people. It, it, that it's really important to build those opportunities to fulfill that need for belonging for people with disabilities. But to be honest, that's something that you need whether regardless, whether you have a disability or not, that sense of belonging and that sense of being part of a community. And that can be a healthy thing <laughs> or, or, or you can do it in some really unhealthy and destructive ways. I guess that's another topic that we can have a conversation about what happens when people are in an unhealthy community what mm -hmm. happens when people are in unhealthy relationships and how do you get out and <laughs> we did touch you, on that but yeah assuming you recognize the, the unhealthy nature of of the that particular social co cohort thank you everyone for joining us for this conversation thank you liza jeremy and scott for being part of the conversation i forgot to introduce you in the beginning why didn't you stop me anyway I'm the Idea Dynamo, Samantha Pierce, and thank you for listening to Life Fantastic, the podcast where people with disabilities talk about all things related to disability here on Straight Independent Radio. We're sponsored by NeurodiversityConsulting.org and Sanchia.org. Check us out on the web to find out about all the great things that we do with people with disabilities. Thank you everyone for listening and we'll have another great topic for you next time.